Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. Well, we are returning this week to the Beatitudes, the blessings said by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount as told in the Biblical New Testament Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It is impossible to translate this Greek word, praus, found in the text with just one English word. In the vocabulary of the ancient Greek language, the meek person was not passive or easily pushed around. The main idea behind the word meek was strength under control or humility. It is thought that in Matthew 5, 5, Jesus is referring to Psalm 37, 11, which says, but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. In general, the Greeks considered meekness or humility a vice. See what you think. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then from Colossians. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. May God's blessing be upon the reading of God's holy word. Amen. Oh 
the late writer, Madeline Elingle, wrote a little book about Lent, and it's entitled The Irrational Season, in which she attempted to make sense of a church year that had fallen on hard times. Given the context of the 21st century world we live in, I was thinking about writing a sequel to her little book. Got a title, I want to run by you. The Irrational Teachings, Reflections on the Beatitudes. It's catchy, isn't it? I like it. But why irrational? Well, because if we're honest, these opening lines of the Sermon on the Mount sound irrational, like quaint little platitudes passed down from a bygone age. Now, whenever we hear the Beatitudes, we are struck by their poetic beauty, but at the same time, I think we are overwhelmed by the perceived impracticability of the, their practice for the modern world as we negotiate everyday life. I mean, blessed are the poor in spirit. Really? Blessed are those who mourn. Well, I, I guess that was not so bad. But seriously, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Really? I mean, all of us speaking ideally can admire that instruction. The discomfort comes, I think, when we contemplate putting those words into actual practice. We live in a time when blessings are given to those who gain status, wealth, acclaim, often at the expense of others. I think if we were writing the Beatitudes, we might write them a little differently. Blessed are the self-reliant, not the poor in spirit. Blessed are the cheerful, not those who mourn. Blessed are the bold, not the meek. Look, in a polarized world driven by cultural currents of consumerism and fierce individualism grounded in competition and fear, being poor in spirit and meek will get you nowhere. And the good Lord knows we all want to be somebody, somewhere, don't we? As we heard in the introduction, Jesus' teachings were probably met with equal suspicion and disdain during his time. It is difficult for me, as a historian, to overstate the importance of social standing in the Greco-Roman world, most often calculated by degrees of honor and status. It was, quite frankly, the filter through which they viewed the entire world. Every opportunity, then, to increase status was a powerful motivator in the ancient world, and individuals and communities would submit to extraordinary sacrifice and risk to gain acclaim. Conversely, the desire to avoid diminished status was an equal and perhaps even more formidable influence on the Greco-Roman mind and often proved to be an incredibly potent sanction on doing what was right. Sound familiar? Look out now. It should. It should. As far removed as we may be from the first century world of Christ, we are nevertheless careful to avoid a situation that might jeopardize our status or reputation, especially in the presence of strangers, our people of higher status than ourselves. Like the ancients, our desire for status and acclaim is an inescapable factor that profoundly affects every human life. It's just the way it is. 
And for these reasons, we often approach the Beatitudes, especially this one about meekness, as an impossible challenge for ordinary living. Now, I suppose it doesn't help that the Beatitudes are always, every single year, all three years, the selected gospel reading for All Saints Day in the lectionary. I think that coupling the Beatitudes with All Saints Day can make people called saints unattainably good, right? And the people who aren't, that would be all of us, feel unworthy. And so what do we do? We wait. We wait for figures like Martin Luther King Jr., Dorothy Day, or Mother Teresa kind of show us the way, right? And in the meantime, the world doesn't get any better, and we remain unfulfilled in our seemingly pale expressions of Christian discipleship. In truth, though, the Beatitudes are more than a list of entrance requirements and conditions that we should obtain to get a blessing. In fact, I am pretty sure that the Beatitudes were meant for all of us. Now, scholars love to debate whether the Beatitudes are commands one must obey to enter the kingdom of God or statements of the blessings available to those who trust in God. Look, whatever the Beatitudes are, Jerry Lee Butler, right, I would wholeheartedly submit to you that they are not entry requirements we must meet to have God's acceptance. That's not the way this works. They describe rather a joyful response that God enables in us when we actively accept God. Each beatitude then is a gift that calls for our response. Each beatitude combines elements of promise and challenge. So how are we to understand these precious words of our Savior? Well, understanding that there's a thin line between a long sermon and a hostage situation. <laughs> it's true. Let's dive in, see what we can find real quick. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, as Rev. Barb says, many scholars believe that this beatitude in particular is a direct quote from Hebrew scripture, Psalm 37:11. It reads, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant prosperity. That Hebrew word for the meek there is a word that says hanawim, is the word that we see there. But I think because Greek is better, we can do more with the Greek term that Matthew uses. Preus is the word, preus, you gotta roll that R there. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures known as the Septuagint, this word, preus, is used to describe Moses, of all people, in Numbers 12, three. It reads, now the man Moses, was very humble, preus, more so than anyone else on the face of the earth. Later in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 11, Jesus uses this term in reference to himself. He says, take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle, preus, and humble in heart, he says. Now, look, I don't think that these verses are meant to indicate that either Jesus or Moses was insignificant or weak. So preus, meek, it must mean something else. This word meek in the beatitude before us this morning doesn't mean insignificant compared to you. Rather, it refers to a person with great authority, but one who does not lord it over others, you see. Meekness in this sense, preus. It promotes and cultivates servant leadership rather than authoritarianism. And what does that look like? 
Well, we heard Paul describe it just now in Colossians, didn't we? Listen to him. As God's chosen ones, he says, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. But above all, he says, I love this, clothe yourselves with love. It's like a warm coat, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body. This is my favorite part. And be thankful. Just be thankful. Compassion, kindness, meekness, patience, all there together. The ingredients of holiness and unity. In the simplest terms, loved ones, blessings in this life, individually or communally, manifest when we demonstrate humility, bring a peaceful presence, and hear me now, truly open our hearts to everyone. The great Matthew Henry, a 17th century English priest and biblical commentator, put it this way. He writes, meekness is a calm confidence, settled assurance, rest of the soul. It is the tranquil stillness of a soul that is at rest in Christ. It is the place of peace. Meekness, he says, springs from a heart of humility. I love this. Radiating the fragrance of Christ. I love that, right? You can smell it. You know, tomorrow we will celebrate Juneteenth, the oldest nationally celebrated commemoration of ending slavery in the United States. From its Galveston, Texas origin in 1865, approximately two and a half years after the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation, the, observant, uh, the observance rather, of June 19th is an African-American Emancipation Day has spread across the United States and beyond. And today, Juneteenth commemorates African-American freedom and emphasizes education and achievement. And this day reminds me of so many compassionate servant leaders, African-Americans, male and female, that have transformed the world by their selfless example. A famous one, right? Nelson Mandela. In 1952, as a young lawyer, he established a law firm in South Africa offering free or low-cost counsel to black South Africans. Later on, after enduring brutal treatment, brutal treatment, for almost three decades in prison, he emerged with a vision to transform South Africa from a country of division to one of unity and democracy. Serving as their first black president from 1994 to 1999, Mandela worked to assure passage of a new constitution based on majority rule, but guaranteeing minority rights and freedom of expression for all people. In his 1995 book, The Long Walk to Freedom, wonderful book, I would highly encourage it. This servant leader wrote these impactful words. He says, when I walked out of prison, that was my mission to liberate the oppressed and the oppressor both. We are not yet free, he writes. We have merely achieved the freedom to be free, the right not to be oppressed. We have not taken the final step of our journey, but the first step on a longer and even more difficult road. For to be free, he says, 
is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. He knew wherever they were going, they were only going to get there together. Of course, one of my, my favorite examples of servant leadership is Ted Lasso. <laughs> right? I love this show, right? I mean, this witty, unassuming Southern guy, football coach in America, moves to England to coach this ragtag, divided bunch of soccer players, has no idea what he's doing or how it's going to work. I mean, this show has some of the best lines that I have ever heard that reflect the principles of compassionate servant leadership and meekness in leadership. Here's a few of my favorites. You know what the happiest animal on earth is? It's goldfish. You know why? 10 second memory. Be a goldfish, right? What's the lesson? Don't hold grudges. Be wide-eyed and open to new possibilities every single day. Heck, every 10 seconds, right? Here's another one. Taking on a challenge is a lot like riding a horse, isn't it? If you're comfortable while doing it, you're probably doing it wrong. <laughs> What's the life lesson? Don't expect the journey to be easy. Embrace discomfort. It can be a catalyst for improvement. Here's my favorite. Guys have underestimated me my entire life. And for years, I never understood why. It used to really bother me, but then one day I was driving my little boy to school and I saw a quote by, by Walt Whitman. It was painted on the wall there and it said, be curious, not judgmental. I like that. What's the lesson? Listen, ask questions, cultivate relationships. Now look, I, I know, <laughs> I know this is a tough ask. I, I really do, this is a tough one. Sometimes, if you're anything like me, words like humility, peaceful presence, those are not good adjectives for my behavior, are the spaces that I construct. Just ask my wife. Sometimes I just get angry and impatient. I just get upset when I see and witness callous acts of aggression resulting from ideological differences. When I run up next to opinions and ideas that I vehemently disagree with, ideas that I feel promote disunity and perpetuate harm, it is difficult for me to maintain patience in this tranquil stillness, but it's real easy for me to demonize others. And when my sense of entitlement takes over, I am easily offended, and I effortlessly, like a professional, shun those who I deem unworthy. Now again, I want to be crystal clear on this. Y'all need to hear me. Meekness is not weakness. It does not mean that we need to calm down and sit down when we need to stand up and speak out. Jesus didn't, and neither should we. As followers of Christ, we are called to be a voice for the voiceless and to love those whom this world has pushed to the margins of society without condition or want of reciprocity. Justice and love demand these things from us as followers of Christ. Yet, if we are to follow the way of Christ and break down the barriers of our own making in this world, loved ones, we must embody gentleness and humility that will make room for compassion to take root and grow. Meekness, hear me now, meekness allows us to listen 
and learn in ways that hubris prohibits. And look, there will always be differences among people. Always. We cannot live in a pluralistic democratic society without difference. It is just what is there. As a Methodist, we're living in it, aren't we? We're living in a time when division and skiism is inevitable. It's going to happen. But look at here, to be honest, I'm not too terribly concerned about it. I'm not. I'm not concerned about the differences, theological or otherwise, and I'm not concerned about the split. I don't waste a lot of brain space on it. What I am concerned about is how we will do it. As we part ways, will our words and actions exhibit a degree of Christ-like humility and gentleness that radiates the fragrance of Christ? As I said, as one who studies church history, I am not too terribly concerned about differences, ideological or otherwise. And and I want to tell you all right now, it is a myth. It is an absolute myth to think that there was ever one majority opinion in the church and all these little minority opinions. It's a myth. The early church for the first seven centuries of its life was an absolute mess, an absolute mess, right? But I'm not concerned about those differences that pervade the church or our world because I know that they'll always be there. They always have been. What I am concerned about is how we're gonna manage them, is how we're gonna manage them. Orlando, Florida, midsummer, July, hot, sticky, humid, 30 high school youth on a mission trip with me. Um, We entered Orlando rescue mission. Um, The kids would spend the next two hours playing with the children that lived in that facility while their parents were at work. And it was glorious, glorious sound of chaos in that gymnasium. Basketballs, uh, volleyballs tossing around, footballs flying, frisbees, a lot of screaming. It was just glorious, joyful chaos that that I was sitting there. And as I sat there and, and witnessed all of this joyful chaos, one of our youth, a rather awkward kid, kind of an outsider, he wanted to throw the football around with the kids. And... Um, two or three of the other high school kids were doing it. These were strapping high school football player, senior types, you know what I mean? And they were doing it, and he, he wanted to be a part of that. But unfortunately, this kind of clumsy outsider, he didn't have one sporty bone in his body. And as hard as he tried, he just he couldn't throw that football in any direction further than two feet and wobbly, if you know what I mean. And as it happens, right, as painful as it was to watch all this and this kid really giving his all to it, but just not making it happen. What I noticed was is these athletic boys, this other clique of boys, they, they moved towards this kid. Um, they noticed him and moved towards him unprompted. And they ended up spending about 25 or 30 minutes teaching that kid how to throw that football, you know, how to hold it and how to rear back and whip that baby and do it, all that stuff. And, and guess what happened? Probably no, right? That clumsy, non-sporty, awkward, kind of of out-of-the-way kid reared back, put that baby in his hand, and turned into Tom Brady for five seconds. Just whipped that thing (laughs) in a straight line, perfect spiral. Ooh, it's like a missile going across, right? And you should have seen it. His face just lit up. It just, he started to glow, right? The smile just nearly broke his face. He, He was happy. He was genuinely happy. Why? Because he had just won the lottery? No, because he was a part of something now. He was included. Why do I tell you that? Well, look, I don't, I don't know 
what motivated those athletic kids to teach that boy this very simple thing, but I know they had a choice, yeah? They could have used their position of power and status and ability and lorded it over him. They could have teased him. They could have made him feel like an outsider. But instead, they listened to their heart. They saw him. And they overlooked all that awkwardness. And they brought him closer. And they valued him just as he was. And finally, they expressed love in a very tangible but simple way. They just loved him. And they taught him. It was breathtaking. And it was beautiful and transformative. I want to leave you with one little challenge, a challenge to think about this in a new way. Reverend Nadia Boltz Weber, she's one of my favorite people, she's here in Denver, Lutheran priest. She says this, she says, what if Jesus saying blessed are the meek is not instructive, but performative? That the pronouncement of the blessing conveys the blessing itself. That's different. She says this, Maybe the Sermon on the Mount is all about Jesus' lavish blessing on the people around him on that hillside, blessing all the accidental saints in this world, especially those who that world, like ours, didn't seem to have much time for, people in pain, people who work for peace instead of profit, people who exercise mercy instead of vengeance, those who would come to believe that for them, blessing would never be in the cards. Understood that way, Nadia constructs some new beatitudes for us. Blessed are they who no one else notices, the kids who sit alone at lunch tables, the laundry guy at the hospital, the night shift sweet street sweepers. Blessed are the losers and the parts of ourselves that are so small, the parts of ourselves that that don't want to make eye contact with the world that really only loves winners. Blessed are the forgotten. Blessed are the unemployed, the unimpressive, the underrepresented. Blessed are the meek. You are of heaven, and Jesus blesses you. I like that. I love this image of Jesus just dropping blessings on everything and everyone's like an Oprah show. Blessings for you, blessings for you, right? Just blessing everybody, right? This Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he came to us in the form of a little bitty infant baby, born of flesh and blood, as if to say to all of us, you may hate your bodies but I am blessing all human flesh. You may admire strength and might, but I am blessing all human weakness. You may seek power, but I am blessing all human vulnerability. Indeed, Jesus was God's beatitude, God's blessing to the weak in a world that seems to only worship the mighty. Blessed are the meek, you are of heaven, and Jesus blesses you. My friends, living into the spirit of this beatitude with a commitment to simplicity, hopefulness, and compassion, I think that's something that we can all do. In the process, 
we might just discover that this beatitude, indeed all of the beatitudes, are really not irrational at all. In fact, they may be the only truly rational approach to living. Your takeaways for today. Each beatitude is a gift that calls for our response. Each beatitude has elements of both promise and challenge. Meekness springing forth from a heart of humility promotes and cultivates servant leadership over authoritarianism. And finally, practice being God's beatitude in this world. Let those who feel lost and forgotten know that God sees and values and loves them. Tell them that they are blessed and be a blessing to them. Let us pray. Generous and ever faithful God, you have spoken to us through your inspired word. Now grant us grace to be not mere hearers of your word, but doers also. Guide us from here by the light of your spirit, that we might believe and act on what has been revealed to us today. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.